have your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it's page 61 in this Bible that's on the floor around you. You guys look at that. I'm going to preach from this book. Um, I don't know how many of you know this book. It's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. If you know this book, raise your hand. You know this book. Uh, I was preaching last week, and as I finished up my message, I thought, man, this reminds me so much of We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Um, because if you've not read this book, it's a, it's a children's book. It's by Michael Rosen. Helen Oxenberry does the drawings. Um, but it goes like this. Uh, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. It's a beautiful day. We're not scared. Oh, no. Grass. Long, wavy grass. And if you're a parent right now, you're going, long, wavy grass, right? <laughs> and then here's the part that reminds me of my message. Can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go through it, right? Everybody knows that part. You can't go over it, can't go under it. You've got to go through it. And last week, we talked about what it means to be in the desert, to be wandering in the desert because God has called you out of someplace and, and maybe is bringing you to someplace else, but right now you're in a desert. And here's the truth. When you're in the desert, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. Sometimes we want God to pull us out of it, but you've got to go through it. The only way through the desert is to finish going through the desert, whether you're there as a result of your own decisions or through no fault of your own. When you are in a dark time, you're in a dark place, uh, when you face pain and suffering, we said last week that God will sometimes use those moments and that time in the desert to lead you to a place of greater faith. But the truth is, you got to go through it. That's the only way is to keep going through it. And so when we try to rush out of the desert altogether, uh, we can uh, end up short-circuiting like what God's trying to do in us. Like we could end up um, subverting his will for our life and what he wants to do in our faith. But, but when you're a parent, so if you, um, I, I loved reading these kind of books to my kids. And you guys, if you're a parent, you probably did this. If not, if you're not a parent yet, maybe you remember back to when you were a kid and you had a parent or a teacher that would read books. Did you... Uh, do you like make a big deal out of the scary parts of the book? Like you, uh, you know, you change your voice, you do all the different voices. And then when you get to the, the end of it, it's like, oh no, it's a bear. And then you like make the, uh, and it's a bear and it'll eat you up. And you like tickle your kids and you do the, uh, you know, you try to scare them like that. And, and I love doing that as a parent because my kids would like, they grab my arm or they grab my leg and they'd hold on so tight, right? Because they just, they just wanted something to hold on to. Right? You, know, you know what I'm talking about? They, they do that. Maybe you did that as a kid. Um, maybe when you went to a haunted house, if you do haunted houses, if you, I know some people celebrate Halloween, some people don't, but if you go to a haunted house or you watch a scary movie, uh, you go and you, you, you get to one of those moments where something jumps out of the dark or there's something, the music is starting to escalate in the movie and all of a sudden uh, you grab onto the person next to you because you're so scared. You know who likes haunted houses and scary movies? Teenage boys. And teenage boys like them because they like to go with teenage girls, right? And you know, like if you're a strategic, guys pay attention, if you're strategic when you're walking through the haunted house or you're sitting at the movie, if you get next to that girl that, has, that won't have anything to do with you, but you can strategically pan it, so just at the right time, you're the person standing next to her when you get in that scary part of the haunted house, boom, she's going to grab onto you and you know that's going to happen. And so we all want something to hold on to, don't we? When times get tough, when things get scary, don't we all want something to hold on to? Uh, But isn't it true, whenever we face fear and uncertainty in our life, we want something to hold on to, right? 
Well, last week we started this new series called How to Get Through What You're Going Through. And, and we talked about three stages of faith that followers of Jesus move through. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. This represents uh, Egypt in the lower left. If you weren't here, that's the pyramids. And the upper right is the land of milk and honey. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But we talked about these three stages of faith. And the first one was this confident faith. You know, when you first find your way back to God, when you're in, in Egypt, if you will, you first find your way back to God, um, most of us go through this stage. Now, confident faith can last a long time. But it's, uh, it's that stage where everything in your faith seems to be working right. Like your prayers feel like they're being answered. We're hungry for God's word. We feel like we're blessed whenever we're obedient to what God tells us. And, and just we seem to be in a joyful stage of life. And like I said, that can last for a long time. And then the third stage of faith, the, uh, the promised land, if you will, is, is what we call living faith. It's a faith that <clears throat> doesn't have all the answers. Uh, it may not always look pretty and shiny, but it's real. It's tested. It's true. It's a faith that remains no matter what happens. So that when we have living faith and we go through difficult times, uh, we're still going to have faith. We still hold out hope that, that something great is going to come out of what we're uh, looking for. And that's the kind of faith that most of us want. We want that faith that's tested. We want that faith that um, people look up to. We want that faith that uh, we know for certain that the end is going to make things right. right? But, but here's the problem. There's a second stage of faith, and it's called challenged faith. And see, no matter how long we're in that first stage and that confident faith, eventually something's going to happen. We're going to go through a difficult time, and we end up in this second stage called challenged faith. It's a time of pain, a time of suffering. It's a time when God feels distant. Maybe prayer doesn't feel like it's working all the time. Uh, obedience gets us nowhere. And maybe we even start to wonder, God, do you even care? Do you know what's going on in my life? Are you even real? But the hard part about this is the road to living faith always goes through the desert of challenged faith. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You got to go through it. And so in this series, our focus is on how do we get through that stage of challenged faith? How will I get through what I'm going through? How do I make it through the tough times? And so we're looking in the Old Testament, the story of the nation of Israel, um, we get to see their story all throughout the Old Testament, but we're looking specifically at the book of Exodus. Uh, even though God created everyone, he made this special group of people, we call them the Israelites or the nation of Israel, and, and they, he set them apart to have a special inheritance and a special mission in the world. And so uh, the, if you remember last week at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that they're enslaved in Egypt. And God called a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery. He, said, he called Moses, he said, you will lead my people out of slavery into a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he said. He said, I've promised to bring you up out of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey. But God didn't mention the desert. Have you ever noticed that when you read Exodus chapter 3? Like God says, I will bring you out of this land and I will put you in that land and everything looks good but he didn't say anything about the desert. So when they left Egypt, they must have immediately had that confident faith. Hey, we're free. We've been rescued. No more slave drivers. Look what God has done. But as we saw last week, God didn't lead them directly into the promised land. Instead, he led them into a desert. And all of a sudden, it probably didn't feel so much like rescue. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, nowhere to go. And no prospects that it might get any better. And so the people started to grumble and they started to complain. And after all, slavery beats starvation, right? When it just comes down to it, that's the truth. And so the people of God start to complain about God. 
Well, those doubts followed Moses and the people um, as Moses led them to the base of a mountain. And Moses went up the mountain to spend time with God. By the way, that's a good thing to do. All right, Moses goes up the mountain. He spends face-to-face time with God. All of us, we need our face-to-face time with God. But Moses, as a leader, it's particularly important for leaders. If you're leading people, if you lead people at work, if you lead people in your household, you're the head of your household, uh, wherever you have a chance to lead people, it's important that you spend face-to-face time with God. God has all the answers. I'm telling you, the leadership principles of the Bible, even if you don't believe Jesus, the leadership principles of the Bible are stunning. It will change your life. It's important to spend face-to-face time with God. And so Moses does. He goes up the mountain, but the people are left in the valley. You know, Moses is hearing from God, but the people are hearing nothing from Moses. And so he ends up holding the Ten Commandments, but the people end up holding nothing. And sometimes, don't you just need something to hold on to? And so here's what happens. Let's see what happens. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother, okay? Gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Like, he's gone. We haven't seen him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings so that you, would, that you and your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Uh, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took uh, what they handed him and made an, into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning into a tool. Why? Because sometimes you just need something to hold on to. They, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. What the heck, Aaron? I mean, Aaron is the brother of Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. Moses is the one who led him out of the desert. And Aaron just kind of goes along with this plan, and he makes this calf, and he says, These are your gods that led you out of Egypt? Aaron knows that the calf wasn't there yesterday, let alone when they came up out of Egypt, right? Remember your brother? He's the guy up there talking face-to-face with God, the real God. Would Aaron really think that a golden calf are the gods that brought him out of Egypt? I mean, he made it with his own hands. I mean, Aaron saw the Red Sea part when Moses raised his staff. He saw God send food down from heaven to feed his people. Aaron watched as the Lord provided uh, water and, and food and meat and protection for the nation of Israel. Can he really think that he could just make a God with his hands? I mean, when you put it like that, it seems kind of silly, doesn't it? But look again, right after presenting the calf to Israel, Aaron says this in 32.5. Tomorrow, there will be a festival to the Lord, capital L, Lord. So we know he's talking about the one true God there. So when many, many biblical historians have said that the choice of a calf is not just like an arbitrary idea. A calf was a common image used in many uh, worship throughout the ancient world, many different religions. But when making the image of a god, it was believed that the calf itself was part of the throne. So it would be the, where the god actually sat. Uh, and so the calf wasn't necessarily a god itself. It was a throne for a god. And so while we see Aaron grabbing hold of the golden calf saying, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, we also see him proclaiming, There will be a festival to the Lord, capital L, the Lord, uh, tomorrow, the one true God. So Aaron holds on to this golden calf while still proclaiming his faith in God. Maybe Aaron's a little bit more like you and me than we're willing to admit. Because if you're at all like me, when you walk through this season of challenged faith, it's 
probably not your response to reject God altogether. Most of us, even when times get really tough, especially if, we've, uh, if we're believers, if we've been Christians for a long time, when times get really tough, we continue to say that we believe in God. We don't immediately go to God must not exist because he's not answering this prayer. We probably don't in times of suffering think, well, step aside, God, I've got this handled, right? Most of us don't do that. It's not my reaction. That's not the reaction of most people I know. But, but don't we just feel like we need something to hold on to? The story makes a lot more sense when you read it with the understanding that Israel wasn't looking for a substitute for God, but they were looking for an add-on to God. They were looking for something to have in addition to God. They were tired of the silence. They were tired of the waiting. They were tired of the trudge through the desert. They're tired of being stuck in the valley, and they just needed something to hold on to, something that would help them get through what they're going through. I mean, isn't that what we do when we are going through a time of pain and suffering often? We don't grab onto gold cows, but maybe we hold on to a bottle. Or we hold on to drugs, hoping that the buzz will numb the pain. We hold on to sexual encounters, real or digital, uh, to feel good for a while. We hold on to our job because we're really good at our work. And we know that if we just dive into our work, we, we overwork because it's something we do really well. We can find our identity in that. I mean, yeah, we still want God but man, we're looking for something to hold on to. So last week, if you were here, I asked you to write down uh, what you're struggling with, what the desert represents for you. Um, If you weren't here, uh, maybe just take a moment, take a pen and do that right now on your notes card if you have it. Just what is it that the desert represents for you? Or when you hear the title of this series, how to get through what you're going through, where does your mind immediately go? This is what I'm going through. If you weren't here for that, just think about that. You know, when I made the decision to leave the business world about five years ago and step into ministry, um, I prayed about it both before and during the transition. My wife and I talked about it a lot and uh, what it would mean for our family, what it would mean for us financially, how it would affect our friendships, how it would affect our kids. And it's been really great. It's been a great move for us in so many ways. And we've seen God's goodness in so many ways that we could have never imagined. And I think at least I hope, it's been good for Genesis too. I mean, I think it has been. But just to be honest with you, there are some things about it that have been hard. I mean, it's been pretty tough on my kids at times. They, they have a good life. They know they're loved. But, you know, it's hard to be the pastor's kid. I don't know how many of you know that firsthand. I know some of you do. But it's hard to be a pastor's kid. There are different expectations for my kids than people have for your kids. And uh, our church is really good in general at not judging kids on their behavior and not judging them when they mess up. But, but they feel it. They feel the expectations of that. And they know that on any week, their behavior could be a sermon illustration. <laughs> I mean, you don't have that worry, right? Most of you. They know that if they goof around with a few of their friends, all the eyes are going to be on them as maybe the instigator or the one who should know better. So it's been, it's been difficult for them. And it's something, honestly, I didn't anticipate when we made that move. Sometimes it's been hard for us financially. I mean, I don't want you to hear me wrong. This church takes very good care of us, and we have a generous church. Our elders are generous men, but the church world doesn't quite pay what the corporate world pays, and we made some sacrifices, and God prepared us financially for that. He really did, and and we know that we willingly made this decision, and we never had an extravagant lifestyle anyway, but just like you, we've got to make careful choices about how much we save and how much we spend and where we go on vacation and what we spend on clothes, and that's not new to some of you, but it's a different place than we were in five years ago, and it's been, you know, tough on especially my kids. But I think where it's been the toughest in, on me personally is in my identity. I mean, guys, most of us, men, we find a lot of our identity in what we do for a living, don't we? 
mean, that's what we hold on to. A large chunk of my identity is tied, in, tied up in what we do, how much influence I have, and how successful I am, and how good I can be at my job. And I went from doing something that I had 20 years of experience doing to something I had zero experience doing. I was brand new. And honestly, at first, this campus grew really fast. And it was really cool. And probably in my mind, I took way too much credit for that. But then the growth starts slowing because it does. And when things are new, they grow faster than when they're old. And uh, I probably take way too much blame on myself for that. You know, and I, I question myself a lot. And I ask God, why aren't you blessing this more? And what am I doing wrong? And I have my doubts as to whether I'm really cut out for this. And you guys are just filled with grace. You're filled with grace for that. I appreciate that. But sometimes I just need something to hold on to. So I don't turn to drugs or alcohol or anything like that to supplement my need for God. But I often turn to cynicism. I turn to sarcasm and I, I, to deal with my own inadequacy. I, I, I need people to think I'm funny. And so I'll, I'll pridefully turn the spotlight on someone else's faults instead of prayerfully confessing my own. You know, I'll go to Twitter and I'll write some snarky comment because I think it's funny. And it probably is funny, but I don't want to do that at the expense of other people. I don't like that about myself. I mean, even I need to be reminded that my identity is in Christ. It's not in what I do or who I am, or how much money I make. It's in what I, who I am in Christ. But now I would never say that I don't need God. I don't believe God, that I don't want God in my life. But honestly, sometimes praise for people gives me something to hold on to when I can't hear the praise from God. What is it for you? And what is it that you're going through? You know, some of us are going through a relational desert right now. We feel very alone. Like we really thought that by now we would be married. By now we'd have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know, we had hopes and dreams about that. But right now it feels like God is totally silent on that topic. Others of us have somebody in our lives. We're married or we're engaged, but we feel alone. We feel like we don't have anybody there. Some of us are going through a financial desert. Going to the mailbox just makes you so nervous. Picking up the phone, it's as frightening as a bear hunt because the bills just keep piling up. For others, it's been a season of tremendous disappointment and unmet expectations. Like you want a child, but you can't have one. You wanted that job. You really thought that was the job for you, but you didn't get it. You didn't ask to get sick. You didn't ask for them to get sick. You had such high hopes, such big dreams, and they're gone. And most of the time, it feels like God is gone too. Whatever it is for you, I believe that God has you here for a reason today. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give you two questions um, that you can ask about this pain you're feeling today. But first of all, I want to boil down some simple truths from Scripture about our suffering. If you're in a really difficult time right now, I just want to say I'm sorry. I mean, I can't imagine what you're going through. And if you're in a desperate time, like a time when it feels like maybe it's life or death for you, you're questioning God, what I'm going to say right now may sound like simple platitudes for you, but I want you to remind you it's, it's truth from God's word, okay? Please know this. It was never God's intention for you to go through what, you were going, what you're going through right now. He didn't want this for you. You know, when God created the world, it was a perfect place with perfect people. And God did not want this for you. But he can use it. Scripture says that he can use it for good and he can use it to heal you and to help others in a way that you never can imagine right now when you're going through it. If you let him. And so before we ask these two questions about this season of challenge faith, I just wanted to stop right here in the middle of service and just want to pray for you. Would you pray with me? Bow your heads. Father, many of us are going through our own desert experience. It's lonely, it's painful, it hurts, it's scary, and so we cry out to you, God. I ask that you give us the courage 
not to rush to hold on to those cheap substitutes or those cheap add-ons, but give us strength to get through what we're going through. Strengthen us for our walk through the desert. Help us to learn from it, to grow from it, and know that even in our darkest moments of challenged faith, that you are here with us, that you are walking with us in our pain and our hurt. Please let us know you're here. Please show up. We want to trust in you, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, two questions. So many of you are holding on to something that isn't God, but you're, it's not taking the place of God, but you're holding on to it alongside of God in your life right now. So here's the first question, and these are in your notes if you want to write these down. First question, what do I need to let go of? What do I need to let go of? What substitutes have I been grabbing onto in hopes of dulling the pain? You know, what do I need to surrender? It's an honest evaluation. It might be a relationship that you're holding onto for your own gratification. It's, it's not beneficial. You know it's not right, but it's all you've got, and so you're holding on to it. It could be sex or pornography you're holding on to, something outside of God's plan for your marriage. Maybe you're drinking or abusing drugs to make the pain go away. Or your drug of choice might be food, and you know that you're not eating because you're hungry, but you're eating because you're trying to dull the pain or spending money you don't have. Or maybe it's work, and while other people applaud your success and say, way to go, you're doing a great job, you know that you're holding on to work as a way to deal with stuff. Now, you may not see those things as your God, but when you hold on to them with your fist closed so tight, you miss the opportunity to grab at blessings that God may have for you. And so the posture for surrender, uh, surrendering something is something like this. It's holding your hands out in front of you with your palms up. Let's just all close our eyes, and let's do that for a moment together, all right? Just... Just here, here's what I want you to do. Hold, clench your fists out in front of you. And I just want you to feel as you open up your hands. I want you to feel the relief you get in that. Imagine what it is you've been holding on to has been clenched in those fists all that time. And then as you open them up, just feel the relief that washes over you. Just allow God to take that thing away. Just surrender it to him. All right. Go ahead and open up your eyes. I want to give you the second question. Ask yourself this. What do I need to hold on to? Because we all need something to hold on to. What do I need to hold on to? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says it this way, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, okay, letting go, surrendering what is behind, letting go of what I don't need, And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's what we want to do today. What's amazing about God is that he will never leave us empty-handed. He's always got more for us. And so once you let go of whatever it is you need to let go of, once you forget what is behind, once you surrender that to God, you're left with two empty hands. And you're left with two empty hands facing up, ready to grab a hold of whatever it is that God has for you. I think there there are two things that we could hold on to, and this is how I'm going to close today. There are two things uh, in your notes that we should hold on to. With one hand, hold on to God's presence. Psalm 23, we read this last week together, says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You know, God may have been on the mountain with Moses, but he was in the valley with the people as well. 
And you may look around your life and you can say, I can see God is with him, I can see God is with her, and I can see God is with them, but God doesn't feel like he's with me. I want you to know that God's presence is with you. God will never leave you or forsake you, and you can grab onto his presence. God wants to go through your valley with you. So with one hand, grab his presence. Grab a hold of a Bible reading plan. Grab a hold of a, a, a long walk, just you and God, where you cry out to him. Grab a hold of a worship song that speaks to you. You know, Grab one piece of scripture that you memorize and that you hide in your heart. So that when those difficult times come, you have that to just grab onto and you can know that God is with you. Do whatever it takes to grab a hold of God's presence during this time of challenged faith. Now with the other hand, hold on to God's people. You know, when God established the church, he meant for it to be a group of people who really get each other and who can help each other get through anything. That's why we believe so powerfully in the uh, powerful powerful. That's why we believe so strongly in the power of connection groups. It's where people can minister to one another as they do life together. And it's why we do things like step into the family where people join a ministry team because ministry team isn't just about serving the church and making use of your gifts. It's about getting to know other people that you go to church with and getting to know other people that are on the same journey as you are. And uh, life was not meant to be lived alone. Get around some friends who are following Christ and let them be the ones you hold on to. Author Brene Brown uh, you may know her uh, from a couple of her books. She talks about what it meant for her to be a part of the church. She says this. She says, when I returned to faith, I went for all the wrong reasons. I really went because I thought this is hard and it hurts. And in all the midlife unraveling books, they tell you to go back to church. That's what everybody does. And so I went back to church thinking that it would be like an epidural, that it would take the pain away. But church was not like an epidural for me at all. It was a bit like a midwife who just stood next to me saying, push, it's supposed to hurt a little bit. Hold on to God's people. Find a church and dive in head first. Get involved. It doesn't mean we fix everything, but we're here for you. We'll sit with you through it. We'll walk alongside of each other every step of the way. We all need something to hold on to. The question is, will we trust God Will we trust him in his presence and through his people that he's there and he's ready to help? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we um, are thankful for the truth that you want to be there with us, that even when we don't see you or feel you, we can know that you are walking alongside of us. God, we thank you for the truth that we can trust in the fact that you have our best interest at heart, that you want good for us, and that even when our circumstances don't look like good, that what you have for us in the end is good. Lord, help us to have the faith to trust you. Help us to have the faith to walk through the desert alongside of you, not to want to rush out. Lord, don't let us rush out of the valley when you still have things to teach us. But God, help us to feel your presence. Help us to know that your people are there with us. Help us to trust in what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just like last week, I...